Now, what's your mission? Are you planning to make some kind of alien-human hybrid? Are you coming on to me? Ha, crackers, I take exception to that. I'm not hearing a no. Hobo Radio, the official podcast of HoboTrashCan.com. Brought to you by the Podcast Network. You can share your thoughts on the show anytime by emailing Joel at Murphy's Law at HoboTrashCan.com. Today we have something very cool for you. I'm bringing you in its entirety my interview with Billy West, uh, voice actor extraordinaire. You know, you know him from Futurama and, and a ton of other stuff. And um, this interview was really cool. It's, it was broken up into two parts on the site, and uh, the first part is more just standard him talking about his career and everything, and, and the second part he sort of got into, um, you know, his battles with depression and with uh, drug and alcohol use, and uh, it just ended up being a, a really fascinating conversation, and so I wanted to give you all a chance to listen to it. Um, obviously, you can read the whole thing in two parts on hobotrashcan.com, but uh, I, I hope you enjoy the audio version, and I also, as a special treat, I'm closing it out with a... Uh, a song by Billy West's band uh, that he was in, Billy West and the Grief Counselors. So I hope you enjoy that, and I hope you enjoy the uh, whole interview. Well, I, I wanted to ask you first, um, how did you get into acting? Um, let's see. I, I started out as a musician, actually. Um, I, I learned to play guitar. Well, actually, let me start with trumpet. I learned to play trumpet when I was about 10. And then I sang a lot, like in glee clubs and choirs and then I learned how to uh, actually I picked up my first guitar in 1961 this grubby little Stella guitar that used to hang around in our cellar and uh, kind of was in and out of interest I didn't know how to tune it but then in 19 uh, I guess 63 I got another guitar and eventually I learned how to tune it and by 66 I was starting up my first band and uh after that you know i started to get better and better and i kind of you know moved up the rungs in my little town and you know started to play dances and eventually nightclubs and that was my life you know that's basically what i did um made a living playing music for many years 
And then, uh, but on stage, I used to do voices and everything. Because when I was a kid, I used to do, you know, Tourette out voices and noises and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, it just kind of popped out of me when I would be on stage with a band. And, uh, you know, eventually when the band stuff was over, I needed to find a real job. And I kind of fell into radio through a friend of mine um, who was installing burglar alarms for a living. And he installed some uh, stuff over at this disc jockey, Charles Lockwood era. Uh, he was a famous guy in Boston who had the morning show at WBCN. And I, he had a cassette of me screwing around and he played it for him. And um, the guy said, have him come in, call him, you know? And so I started going into WBCN in Boston for nothing and doing bits on the morning show. And uh, eventually it led to a full-time job. And uh, then in 1989, I got out of there and uh, I started doing cartoons. Like 1988, I did a short-lived version of Beanie and Cecil, uh, which was, you know, the old Bob Clampett thing. And ABC was going to revive it, and it lasted about five or six episodes. But John Chris Felusi produced those. Um, actually, you know, he was given the assignment to do the show. And uh, it lasted, like I said, six episodes or something close to that. And um, so I decided to get out of Boston around that time. It was time to move. And I made a lateral movement. Our sister station in uh, Manhattan, in New York City, um, you know, knew that I wanted to get out of there. And they were amenable to having me come there. But that was also the station that Stern was on. And... Uh, that's how I met him, and I spent a, a great deal of time coming into his show in the mornings and, you know, just organically ripping it up and uh, not caring, like, not caring, like, uh, how far we took things. I mean, we were just pushing the bar. It was like a bunch of kids playing all the time. That's what I liked about that atmosphere. You know, Howard was never afraid to take chances, and, and uh, we'd push each other. And, uh, let's see, 1995, I left there because um, I had already started doing a couple of Nicktoons. One was Doug, and one was Ren and Stimpy. And, you know, that got me really, got get going on commercials and, and doing, you know, looking for other cartoon work because I, I guess I was kind of suited for that. And, um, you know, did tons of projects after that. I was never formally taught to act. I didn't really, there was no voice schools, let's put it that way. And um, acting school, I just, it never dawned on me. I took a couple of classes when I first went to New York. Um, I went over to Stella Adler's and uh, crammed reading just volumes of material. You know, Man and Superman, George Bernard Shaw you know, prologue to Henry V and everything else after it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I tried to cram in as much stuff as I could. And I took what I needed and I left. I didn't stay very long. And um, that's kind of where everything fell for me and just went off on my own and started auditioning for stuff. And eventually I moved out to Los Angeles after being in uh, New York. So how how did uh, Ren and Stimpy come about? What was that? Just you just went in for a cold audition and ended up getting the part, or how did that come mm. to be? Oh no! What happened was um, I had a friend that I grew up with in Boston, Andy Paley, great musician, great producer, and um, he uh, 
knew one of the Clampets, Ruth Clampett, um, was the daughter, and Sodi was the mother. That you know, Bob Clampett produced the Beanie and Cecil cartoons originally, created them, and uh, they found John Kay and and wanted to do them. They were going to bring it to ABC Television, and uh, there was so many warring factions over that. You know, there was Jenny Trias, head of children's programming, and with their ridiculous children's programming edicts. You know, like all of a sudden, you know. Josie and the Pussycats, you couldn't throw a cat in a bowl of spaghetti, you know, because they thought kids would throw their cat in a bowl of spaghetti, that old shit. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Never occurred to me to do that, nor did it ever occur to me to burn my house down if I saw it in a cartoon, you know? Right, or hit someone with an anvil, or... Yeah, but it's, yeah. So, yeah, but it's so insulting to kids because they're born learning machines. Right. You know, and then we dumb them all nice and down, and... uh you know, we're off to the races. Um, but, uh, you know, I I got asked by um, John Kay, you know, and the family. They got word to John, and they said, you know, we want to use this guy. So it was me and Maurice LaMarche, and we were recording them in, uh, in Vancouver. And I was still living in Boston. And we did the episodes, like five of them or something, and then, that, and then it was dropped, dumped. And, uh, you know, that's how that started. But people had started calling me, like, uh, at the very same time, a guy named Jim Jenkins called me to be the voice of uh, this character he created called Doug, and it was a Nickelodeon show. Both of them were actually Ren and Stimpy and uh, Nickelodeon. But John remembered, John Kay remembered us doing Beanie and Cecil, and he sent me some pictures of the Ren and Stimpy characters. And... Um, you know, I, I auditioned for both of them, and uh, he wanted to use me. He auditioned everybody, I guess, in town, and uh, he had me listen to these tapes of, uh, like, Peter Laurie and Burl Ives and all these, you know, Kirk Douglas. And he was always intrigued with the Larry Fine from the Three Stooges impression that I did, but you couldn't have him sound like a depressed old Jew, so, <laughs> you know, he had to kind of live in the uh, cartoon parameters that universe so we amped them up a lot um and that went for about five years but they got rid of john k after the into the second season almost and doug was still going we did four seasons of that um and that's how the whole you know getting into the cartoons kind of started so with the the voices is that generally how it works do they kind of you go in for an audition and they say, this is what I have in mind, like Larry Fine, but, you know, not as sad. Or, or is there a specific exactly. idea? Yeah, um, or you build a voice out of nothing for them. You just come in cold and throw a bunch of shit at the wall. And, you know, if they see the practical application, they'll let you know about it because they're always enthusiastic and, you know, there's emotional resonance about what they have created and what they want to do. And, um, you know, I just, I usually go in, take a look at the character. I mean, like a real good look at it. Um, here's some descriptions about what, you know, where the character stands in life. You know, is it insecure? Is it bombastic? Is it schizophrenic? Is it, you know, sociopathic or childlike or whatever the description is? Um, and I kind of weigh them up in my head and give them an interpretation of what I think you know, they might be looking for. 
And do the are the voices usually pretty fully formed for you at the beginning, or, or do you, are you someone who tinkers with them? And do you kind of I tinker with stuff all the time. Um, you know, it's kind of a you know every character is a work in progress. You watch the third episode of The Simpsons, and you watch the the seven uh, hundredth episode or whatever. Uh, the voices sound totally different. Yeah, Homer especially changed. Yeah, but I mean, that just happens, and I kind of like that because it means it's a work in progress. And, and so, a living thing. And so does that just come from you doing the voice over and over again and, and you start picking up on things, or, or what is it that causes it to change? You, you know just, what it you, is? It, it, it's like, it's sort of a sneaky redo because you're discovering what the character should be you know, what it should have been in the very beginning, you finally hit on it and, it, and it hits the sweet spot, and then you stick with that. And so... It happens in, in most cartoons. So for Futurama, uh, with you doing so many voices, how did you audition? Like, how did that work? Did you come in and they... Well, the audition call went out, and they wanted me to come over and audition at Fox for Futurama, and I walked in the room, and it was like, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, allergies today um i walked in the room and there was about 150 people in there you know i saw guys like ryan styles and i was like oh jesus let me out of here <laughs> and um you know and all my voice pals were were up for those roles and they bring in you know Lori petty from tank girl you know like a zillion years ago oh really and yeah i mean everybody was over there and and I was excited to meet Matt Groening because I had never met him. And he knew who I was, and I was just like, you know, I know who you are, too. Um, and I just, uh, they gave me pictures of the characters and, and described them a little bit, and what do you think? And I read some stuff for them, and I wound up getting four roles. So what made you decide, because uh, Fry is very similar to your own voice, what, what made you decide to sort of stay close to your voice for him? Um, because I remember myself when I was 25 and I wasn't, you know, I was kind of a, I don't know, I was I was wild, but I, but I, I didn't know how to express myself. You know, I had all these great thoughts and everything, but I just couldn't articulate them for some reason they wouldn't come out right, and... And I thought that was charming for a character to have, especially like a an everyman. And, um, you know, and, and he's well-meaning and everything, and he is a little stupid. I mean, I thought I knew everything, and I was stupid about so many things. It, it isn't funny. But um, that was what I sounded like when I was 25. I remember I was always whining, like when I was in the band. It's like, ah, fuck, I broke a string, you know, <laughs> whining. Well, you know, when are we going to get the equipment in here? This <laughs> afternoon or tonight? What's the matter with you people? You know, that's, I remember sounding like that. <laughs> so where uh, where did the other voices come from? You know, like Zap Brannigan and Zoidberg? And... Uh, Zap Brannigan was an amalgam of, of all the big dumb announcers that I heard growing up, and some of them I actually worked with in radio. They were still around, you know. Those guys that carry their balls in a wheelbarrow, <laughs> you know, and love far away above anything else in this world the sound of their own voice. Yeah. And they they stretch out words longer than they should be. They swing with every pitch. And I thought, I'm going to try this for Zap Brannigan. So 
I took a couple of uh, a couple of characters that I knew in radio and um, sort of put them together, cold fused them or super collided them, whatever the description is apt. But um, Zap was like, you know, Kiff, I let them in. I've made it with a woman. Meh. <laughs> and just trying to sound like those old guys. And for so for Zoidberg, how did you come up? Zoidberg with that? was a um, a mashup of um, the old Yiddish theater, theater actor and movie uh, actor Lou Jacoby, who talked like he had marbles in his mouth. You know, he would he'd be like, you know, uh, oh, I remember in, in the movie Arthur. Oh yeah, with Dudley with Dudley Moore, um, Lou Jacoby is like a neighbor or something or somebody, but he, but he looks at Arthur and he goes, what's it like to have all that money? <laughs> and, um, you know, he was that guy. And then I fused him with a, a vaudevillian comedian named George Jessel, who also had a marble mouth. You know, he was like, ah, ladies and germs. And, and so when you put the two of them together, you're young, young lady, bring me a sandwich from the dumpster and leave the nuggets on it. <laughs> Robert. Uh, so when you, uh, when you guys record the show, do you do each part individually or is it done like a radio play? How, how is that we, show recorded? We're done, uh, we try to always uh, record as an ensemble, but some people can't be there and you just kind of skip their parts. But uh, there's an energy that's in the room. Yeah, I would think that you would know. make a difference to actually have... Oh, there's a lot of play going on and give and take. And, and just like, you know, when the machine is off, when the recorder is off, we, uh, you know, we'll just start talking about current events and we'll start doing voices and, you know, making fun of everything under the sun and just getting a mess of laughs. And that kind of translates, that energy translates into what you're about to do for real, like the reason you were there. And did they? And I, I hold them all in such high esteem. You just don't know. I mean, it's um, it's like going to school. I learn something every day from my friend, my friends, my peers. Did, and do they let you guys play around? Is there any room to to ad lib during the the recordings, or is it pretty strict to the script? No, it's pretty strict to the script because they work that so hard and deliberately and want it to be as perfect as they can get it. And uh, every now and then somebody will have an idea and, and you'll just hold your hand up like school and say, I, I have an idea if you want to try it. And they, they welcome it, you know. And if it's good, they'll, they'll put it in. If it's not, you know, the, it's the cutting room floor. And do you, so what is it like? When you're doing multiple voices, I mean, you, obviously you're having conversations with yourself. Is Does that get weird? Does it get hard to keep track of, of the voices, or are you pretty good at being able to switch from one um, to the other? I, I could do it pretty uh, naturally because I loved puppets. You know, I used to just make puppets out of nothing when I was a kid, and I used to do the voices for them, you know, do these little made-up shows on the spot, Um you know, for my friends or in my house for myself or whatever. And, um, you know, it was, I loved characters and I loved disappearing in them. I loved uh, committing to them. And 
And so doing them back-to-back was um, a good challenge, and it kept me on my toes. Ren and Stimpy, I'd do one character and then go those, through the script as another and maybe three others. Um, but, but Doug was done as an ensemble, and I did everything in real time, back and forth from, you know, Roger Klotz, the bully kid, to uh, Doug, who was a sweet, you know... Um, Painfully shy, a little and a half year old. You know, that kind of <laughs> sweet kid. Have you ever? And, uh, you know, and, and uh, Futurama has done ensemble, and which means in real time. So I've gone four pages in a row talking to myself. <laughs> Have you ever done the wrong voice? Characters. Sorry? Have you ever done the wrong voice? Like, just yes. <laughs> yes, it happened once about, I don't know six or seven years ago and the room stopped dead we were doing the table readings <laughs> and there's a giant audience in there you know all the people that work on the show and invited guests to come and watch us you know doing the table reading one time I blanked out and the voice came out of me as a different character than it should have been and I everything stopped dead though <laughs> it was like what <laughs> and I said this is how it starts I guess <laughs> I just hope I go quietly in my sleep tonight. Uh, so, so what was it like? I mean, with Futurama, you know, you guys uh, were canceled and, and you went away, and then you you had uh, the the DVD resurgence at first, and then now you're back on Comedy Central. Just what was it? Sort of, I guess, the whole journey of it of, of not thinking the show was going to come back, and then getting to come back for the, the movies and then now being back as a regular series? Um, it was wonderful. I mean, it was it's the best show that I've ever done, in my opinion, and a lot of others on the show feel the same way. Uh, it's the most satisfying thing I've ever done, and I have a lot of respect for everybody on every level that does this show. Um, we all contribute. We all are part of the orchestra of it all. And... Um, you know, it, it was like getting canceled. It was like, ah, oh, really? You know, because I couldn't see my friends anymore. And, uh, you know, when they brought it back, I thought, oh, this is great. You know, we'll just start up again. But um, it was a kind of schizophrenic uh, thing there for a while. You know, are we doing it or are we not doing it? Are we going to be characters or not be characters? And, you know, that kind of feeling. But I thought it was wonderful when we did go back to do it and kept doing it. And uh, I have to thank all the fans, though, for bringing that show back. I mean, it was the fans that did it. It was a, it was a, uh, you know, this giant force that uh, the network couldn't, you know, couldn't uh, ignore. And what do you think? Do, do you think it was just a, a show that that was ahead of its time? Do you, do you think it wasn't? promoted right or, or do you kind of have like why do you think it didn't work the first time or didn't stay around the first time and it took a while for them to realize oh wait there's a huge audience for this and everybody well, loves was, this there was a mysterious style of promoing the show like you know they'd say uh, you know tonight on Fox an all new Malcolm in the Middle starting at you know no wait a minute it would say tonight on Fox 7pm Futurama followed by an all-new, you know, uh, Malcolm in the Middle, and followed by a brand-new episode of The Simpsons, and then they'd say, remember, the fun begins at 7.30. <laughs> Did they really say that? Yes. Wow. 
Yeah, that's not a big like vote of confidence for your. For it was like the Casey Kasem thing, you know. <laughs> Two, you know, seven thirty. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's. Yeah, the fun begins at what? You know. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like a lot of people weren't even maybe aware of the show until it started, be, you know, like the actual seasons were released on DVD and, and stuff. I, I don't, yeah, I don't know if it was a promotions thing or what. But. There are people that are still discovering that the show is on, like it's a brand new thing to them. Right. Which is great, I mean, because now enough time has gone by, I, I go to these conventions and these, you know, some giant burly guy will come up with, you know, uh, you know, big giant handshake and, uh, how are you doing? And I go, hey, how are you, sir? And he goes, I just want to thank you for when I was a kid. You know, <laughs> for all the laughs. And, and, you know, and I mean, I love hearing that. I'm totally touched to my soul when somebody says that. Nothing but filled with gratitude. But it's freaking me out. <laughs> <laughs> because the time goes by so damn fast. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, how often do you get, I, I mean, I, I would think especially with Fry, do you get recognized by your voice from time to time, or how often? A lot of times, yeah, from time to time. Um, I'm glad, you know, I, I kind of love doing what I do. I, I never had any interest. To tell you the truth, I never thought about being a celebrity. You know, I just didn't. I was, I, I was so passionate about what I did, I just wanted to bring something to the table so badly that the idea of being famous um, was foreign to me because when I was growing up, my heroes were artists, you know, not celebrities. Right. And uh, to this day, you know, when they use celebrities in cartoon movies, you know, animated features, it's like, wait a minute, you know, this is crazy. I mean, we always would go in and they'd say, we got this bar of lead on the table. Can you turn it to gold for us before you leave? And yeah, sure, zing, and then leave. And then when celebrities come in and they say, we got this bar of lead on the table, can you turn it to gold before we leave? And they go, yeah, where's my $20 million? And they leave and it's still a bar of lead. There's no alchemy. Yeah. No, I mean, there's no magic that seems to take place. And I go, well, where is the friggin' art? Yeah, I've always wondered about that, that too. I, I guess I never understood the logic of... You know, if it, you're doing, like, an animated children's movie, it's not like there's a kid out there that's like, oh, I'm going to see this because Brad Pitt is doing a voice. Or, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, but you know what? I know voice people who, who are actors, trained actors that can piss circles around any of these celebrities. I'm not that, kidding. But I, that's what I'm saying. I don't understand the the desire to, to have a name, I guess. Like, I don't see what that... Like, I would think you would want someone who can do a voice and make a character because that's what kids are going to remember versus, like... Kids don't care if a celebrity is doing no, the voice. No, the networks don't want variables. They don't want to have things that they have to worry about, like finding the right voice and did we make a mistake and aesthetically how is this going to go over. And they they want to skip that process. And and so they made up a they you know they couldn't co-opt that as well as they wanted to. So they came. They need a formula. Everybody has to have a formula. So they say put celebrities in your movie. Um, it equals success, except that it doesn't always equal success. It can be a total, you know, gutter ball. Uh, so the the other thing I, I wanted to ask you about, too, I was just kind of curious, you know, from time to time when you do, uh, like, established voices. I, I know you did 
like Space Jam, you you did Elmer Fudd and, and Bugs Bunny. I, I was just curious, how do you, if you're not making up the voice yourself, if you're not creating it from scratch, what do you listen for if you're doing more of an impression, or how do you find those I, voices? Well, I think most voice people start off trying to mimic styles of people who influence them. I think it's a natural. Um, you know, so I could do a pretty good job with, like, Warner Brothers characters. You know, I didn't have all of them down totally, but but uh, in my heart of hearts, I didn't really want to be an impressionist, you know. I didn't want to wind up as a footnote, you know, spend my whole life as a voice guy and wind up as a, you know, an inscription on a watch or something. Um you know, I wanted to make some noise, and I wanted to be in everybody's face when I moved to New York. I was like a Terminator. I would audition for everything and anything. And, um, you know, and then they started looking for, you know, guys who could create a character for them rather than sound-alikes because a lot of the Impressionists couldn't create a character. Right. You know, and you'd be sunk if you had to it's just like, you know, I, I, I'm going to use this voice. But what you can do creating original characters, you can take famous people and styles that you recognize and and just throw them together in a test tube. You know, you, you can take some piece of showbiz periphery, some guy, and infuse him with the energy and exuberance of another person in show business or, or famous voice. You know, and, and even a lousy impression is a voice no one's ever heard before. <laughs> right. So I mean, there's ways of getting to uh, some some kind of originality, and you just keep hoping. You know, even though there's nothing new under the sun, you keep hoping that you can uh, continue being somewhat of a hybrid of everything that's gone down. Uh, well, so obviously you still uh, have Futurama going, but what uh, what else is there? Anything left that you still really want to do, or, or what going forward? Yeah, I want to produce and write shows. Um, animated shows, which I've been doing. I have a project going, and we're starting to animate it, and um, we'll see what happens with it. I work with my partner is an animator, director, writer, um, producer, you know, came from Ren and Stimpy days, Jim Gomez. And we're working on stuff, and we have been working on like four or five things. And uh, they got some interest, and so one of them is going off to be animated, you know, like small parts, like a demo. Right. And, you know, I'm hoping that that will allow me to, to just be able to expand what it is I have to offer, you know, uh, a network or a uh, a company. Can you talk about the, the one that's going forward, or is it too early? No, I can't yet, but, you know, hopefully you'll be watching it and wanting to interview me about that. You know, that's the ideal situation. Yeah, well, uh, is there a way, like, for people to follow you, or or if people want to keep up with what you're doing, do you do Twitter or have a website or anything like that? No, you know what? I used to have a website, and I I made the terrible mistake of just being too accessible. Right. And I was being driven crazy. It was like walking into a hive full of bees. (laughs) Uh, you know, I mean, there's a usual, you suck, I'm better than you, and, you know, and I'd be like, I'd, I'd just, I had to answer back, and i go, what's it like being seven and a half, I forget. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, the, it's... No, it's, and I had a couple of dangerous people, and you get into that whole thing, and it's like, screw that, you know, I don't want to be a moving target. But 
it is important to have a website so I won't have a forum and I could just like keep everybody informed that has an interest in what I do. And, and thank God, you know what I mean? What are the odds against people following what you do for a living? I mean, it's got to be a billion to one. Right, right. And I totally know that. And I talk about it with uh, my other friends, my other, you know, voiceover people. Um, you know, what are the odds? This is, you know, you were just so thankful and, and have so much gratitude that we can actually work and do this, you know, and not, uh, you know, fall off the face of the earth in spite of the celebrity invasion. Uh, what do you think you'd be doing for a living if you never got into acting? Um, I'd probably try to keep being a musician, but that was getting tougher and tougher. And now I understand that if you're a young guy and you play and sing, you've got to be in five bands. Right. To try to make any money at all or try to make a name for yourself. That's whacked, you know? Yeah. How Do you still play pretty often or how often do you actually get to... I, I, I have a room full of beautiful guitars that I... I love, and I every now and then I get to play and crank up the amplifier. Um, but I tried having a band, and it's just too hard. It's too hard. You know, you got to have the energy, and you can't have responsibilities. That's what the beautiful part about being in a band was years ago. You know, you were you you had total abandon. You'd just say, "All right, first we're gonna we're gonna get some instruments, and we're gonna." You know, take over the block, and then we're going to take over the city, and then we're going to take over the country. All we got to do is learn how to play these things. And it was uh, it was a wonderful feeling, though that feeling of you have no idea where you're going or what you're going to do. There was magic about that. And then, then when you're you have tons of responsibilities in life and commitments and everything, you miss the romantic notion uh, of the way it felt. To be out there, you know, just uh, shooting from the hip, playing every night, playing every gig. Um, I do miss playing with other people, and that's hard to get together. You know, because everybody, I mean, when I think about it, it's ridiculous. You know, it's like I'm 60 years old, and it's like I want to go over to my buddy's house and knock on the door. Hey, you want to jam? You know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you could do that. I feel, I feel like I, you should I, do that. I probably could, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm one of those people that never grew up or something, you know. I still never felt like... I don't feel like an adult. <laughs> right. You know, and I and I do realize that the day you lose your ability to play and have that kind of freedom, that's when you become a geezer. <laughs> Good news, everyone. I'm a, I'm a geezer. <laughs> um, tell me something that most people don't know about you. Um, let's see. Oh, boy. This is, this is weird. Oh, I, that I had chronic low-level depression since birth. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I, did, I had no idea what life was really like until I was about 50, and I was treated for depression, and I, I felt so horrible. I wanted to kick my own ass once I realized what real life was like. Because when I was growing up and I was a you know, younger adult and beyond that, I would look at everybody else and I'd say, look at these people. They're not, they don't do what I do. They don't hide in the shower and sit down like a fetus, you know, and can't come out. And I said, you know, 
and yet everybody goes through this, so I must be a big pussy. I can't, you know, deal with life on life's terms, and all these people can somehow. You know, so you beat yourself up. You have no idea that almost none of those people knew what it felt to be uh, chronic, chronically depressed. And it's a miracle I actually lived to, you know, to be doing what I'm doing because I was, uh, you know, there's a blackness to all of that. No matter how hard you try to be happy, it's like it crushes you to the floor. And to me, that was normal life. I didn't know any different from that. So how I ever managed to achieve or do anything is beyond me. Wow. Yeah. I'm... But, but, but it got better. You know, once um, I was being looked at about depression, because I, I, you know, women, women have always been my best teachers in life. And I met a woman therapist who got a load of me for about a couple few months. And she said, um, have you ever been treated for depression? I said, no, why would I want to do that? <laughs> and she said, because the way you talk, the way you describe things and that you're emotional and, you know, not that that's a bad thing, but... Um, she said, did you ever go to see if that might be something that's going on? I said, no. And she gave me a card for this guy. And next thing you know, I find out at 50 years old that I had had chronic low-level depression since birth. And, and it was hideous. And I never realized how hideous hideous was, you know. It's all relative. Um, so... Um, I was being treated for it, but before I took it, this guy said, "Oh no, you'll be able to uh, you'll be able to think clearly, and um, you know your mind will be a little more at ease. You won't be staggered breathing. You know those are usually things that subside." And I said, "Yeah, but what if I become happy, and it <laughs> may, negates the need for me to entertain others?" <laughs> you know, or to overcome great obstacles to create some sort of art. And, uh, you know, I said, what if, um, what if there's no desire anymore to be compulsive about performing and, and uh, you know, uncompromising? And he just said, that's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but he said, what I can tell you is all the artists and, and creative people that he had treated, he said they they began to do the best work of their life because now they weren't looking through a prism of, prism of shit. You know, they could see things clearer, perceive things better, and analyze basically stuff the same way. And uh, I was afraid I might lose something, you know, if I didn't feel out of whack. But I didn't, and the work got better and better. I mean, I was thinking of horrible scenarios like, hey, you know, doctor, what if, what if back in the slave days they had this stuff and they gave it to the slaves, you know, you know, so they could feel better? I said, would, would, have, would they have sung out their pain in 12-bar blues form, which is the true American art? Would they have been moved to do that or would they bother not to do that? You know, which blues, which begat jazz, which begat rock and roll, would the House of Blueses all start disappearing? And <laughs> you know, he was just like he didn't know what to say. I mean, because the, you know, it's the first thing I thought of. We probably wouldn't have never invented anything if somebody wasn't whacked out <laughs> somewhere or in pain or you know, <laughs> distraught. And if you 
like if you had had to choose between <coughs> being happy and uh, being creative, you would have chosen to like if that really was the option, would you have chosen to be unhappy and continue to create? Um, no, I, I knew I knew in my heart of hearts that something was desperately, desperately wrong, and I didn't even know how to articulate it. Um, you know, and I had all these classic symptoms. It's just that I. You know, if I entertained the thought, I thought that somehow I was bigger than that and I could fix anything. You know, like, I'll just fix myself. Don't worry about it. Right. Um, but that was not the case. What I, what I would have rather is I had a horrible childhood. I had a miserable, my dad was a horror, and uh, he was certifiable, and, and, you know, he tried to kill me like 20 times. I took my first beating in utero, you know. When my dad found out my mom was pregnant, he he was drunk and he just went nuts. You know, he didn't want nothing to do with me. And and some one time a, a shrink brought up the fact. You know, I said I love my dad. I don't know whatever I did to him or or made him angry. And, and they said, did it ever occur to you that he didn't love you? And that was totally foreign concept to me. How could that possibly be? And yes, it was true. Um, so. You know, I grew up um, guessing at what normal was. Wow. But wherever we sit, wherever you are right now, whatever it is that your assignment is or whatever your job is or whoever you're with, it's all the sum totals of everything that happened in your life. And I'm convinced that I had to have gone through everything I, I went through or I wouldn't be sitting here right now. That's a, you know what I mean? Win, win, lose, or draw. You're sitting where you're sitting for a reason. Right. That's a good. I think that's a good attitude to have. And and obviously. Yeah. Either that or have a gun for lunch. You know. <laughs> what right. else? Yeah. How else can you think about it? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm 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 a happy guy, you know. And like I said, I'm just so so grateful that you know people like what we do. Um, oh, it's, yeah, it's I can, brilliant. Can work and and fulfill you know it's always fulfilling to me i never got jaded i'm always trying for something new that's good i really um yeah i appreciate you sharing that with me and i i appreciate you talking to me it's been really great um yeah but i mean you know i i also i didn't mention that i was an alcoholic and a drug addict for two decades oh really you know because because i couldn't handle bare wires these horrible feelings. I didn't know what was wrong. They were raw nerve endings that were electrified, like the, the telephone lines. And um, the only way I had to treat it was medicate myself. And so I was, I was terrible. I was, uh, you know, not myself in any way, shape, or form once I got going. Although I could play. I don't know how that's possible, but I used to do things in blackouts. Or you know, like you would did play... I play last night? I don't even remember coming home. Oh, wow. But you yeah, would do entire really... shows and have no recollection. Yeah, but I worked in radio the first few years that I was in radio. Um, I was in a blackout. And they told me everything I did was amazing and great, but I, I don't remember a lot of it. You know, because I was there, but I wasn't there. And did you ever, have you ever heard any of that stuff? Like, did any, you know, any of the radio shows recorded or any of your... Yeah, I heard some things, and you know what? They are pretty clever, and, and you can hear me, you know, A for effort, trying my balls off. 
but a few of the things I could hear the coke in my nose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I would I would think too that like when you watch an old Sonny and Cher show from the seventies, <laughs> you know, you can taste the coke. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I would think too, like for what you do, I would think being sort of clear-headed and and having quick response time would be beneficial. That you would be better, I would think, you know, like to be able to come up with stuff quickly, especially like when you're doing radio and stuff. Um, I did somehow. Yeah. I did, but I was but I was uh, flying blind. You know, I just I just had. I guess I had so much of, you know, and the gift, that's another thing. I had so much of a gift, and, and and it's like, what an insult to the universe to throw it back in the face of the universe. I could give a shit, you know, about anything uh, back then. You know, I, I just was like, you know, what am I doing this for? What am I, a clown? You know, I'm going to, you know, tap dance and do, uh, you know, you know, swim in circles. And, you know, I mean, I started to resent myself and it was all it was all you know low self-esteem and you know thinking that somehow you could just rise above that and but uh that's that's the state you're in when you're like that and when you're a druggie and an alky there's no future you know it's always the past it's always a downward spiral a spiral that's where you spend most of your time or in a constant present of of nothingness you know, you can't speculate on the future. You're not living there. You're not even living in, in the moment you're in. So everything is uh, everything is bleak. And I, and I feel terribly for anybody that's going through this kind of thing because a lot of it is depression underneath all of it. Do you, uh, do you still get treatment or, or are you kind of... Oh, yeah, I... You know, I take medication and stuff, but I mean, I'm, I'm kind of the me I should have been. It's almost like if I could skip 19 years of craziness. I was a good guy. I was a sensitive guy. I was raised by a woman. My mom took three kids and moved to Detroit. And I understand a lot about women, how they can be so nurturing and tender and how disciplinary they have to be like a sergeant and so I'm evolved. I leave the, the toilet seat down, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I don't mind telling you that. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an evolved man. But, you know, I, w- I was a good kid. And then I just took a wrong turn. But I feel like I'm, I joined that good kid in progress. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you were able to get back on track. I mean, yeah, it definitely sounds like you're in a good place now. Yeah, I, I, I can tell you that. Thanks a lot, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Joel. Um, I hope to speak to you soon. Yeah, definitely. Take care. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Do you?
It's just referred to I'm as telling the you. block. Yeah. You know, I sound like a nut, but... No, I trust me. I just had so much fun, man. Oh, yeah. oh. Well, 